1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 to 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you eager to hear from you. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would speak. Speak to us through your scriptures, speak to us through the preaching of your word, and help us, Lord, not to despise your truth. Rather, help us to test everything, to hold fast to what is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. Lord, let your Bible speak, let your word speak, and help us, Lord, to be people who listen, who trust, and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, it's incredible to think that a letter that was written to a group of young Christians living in another part of the world during a very different era could still be so helpful and relevant for us today. I mean, just think about it. We're, we're now close to almost 2,000 years removed from when this letter was uh, approximately written. And it's an understatement to say that a lot has changed. We are living in a very different time today. So why did we spend the last 11 months carefully studying this old and ancient text? Do you realize it's been 11 months since we first started 1 Thessalonians? Well, yes, it's, it's fair to say that a lot has changed from first century, first century Thessalonica to where we are today. But in another sense, we, we have to understand that there are still things that have remained the same. What I mean is sin is still present Evil is still existing in the world. Afflictions of various kinds are real, and this world is still a broken place that is in need of the gospel. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonian Christians during a time when they're experiencing severe persecution because of their faith. And and so out of a deep love and concern for them, he wrote this letter to encourage their hearts and to call them to endure amidst affliction. Now, the kind of affliction they experienced was, was very different from what we may be experiencing today, but what Paul wrote in this letter still applies to us in the same way, and, and we can actually see that in the text. 
If you open your Bible again and look at the second last verse of this letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says, one of his final instructions here, he says, I put you, Thessalonian church, under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. All the brothers. Paul gives very strict instructions to the Thessalonian church to have this letter not just simply stored away for only them to read and to, to hear, but, but he gives them instruction to distribute it to all the brothers and sisters in the Lord, to all the churches around them. And that tells us that even though this letter was written specifically and, and primarily to the Thessalonians as the primary recipients, these truths go far beyond their borders and they transcend space and time. Friends, what we have here this morning, what we have here in the word of God is a word that is meant for all Christians. We're at the end of the letter now, and today we're going to conclude this series by looking at a text that calls us to endure faithfully until the end. As you can see for yourselves, and as you probably realized when I was reading the text, uh, there is a lot of material to cover here. Prophecies, holy kiss, and we've got some fun stuff to, to deal with here. And uh, I'm going to work my way through all of it today. So that means that I'm going to move through this text at a pretty good clip, and we're, we're not going to go in-depth in everything, obviously because we just don't have the time for that this morning. But I'm also going to preach this way because that's basically what Paul does in his letter. He, he, he doesn't really explain or elaborate on every single command. He, he just fires them off one after another like a rapid-fire machine gun. But, it, but it's important to understand that these aren't just a bunch of commands that were randomly compiled together and then put at the end of his letter in some kind of messy and confusing way. What we see here is that there's actually a very clear organization of material and a wonderful flow and logic to what he is saying. So let me show you this by jumping into the text now. Here's point number one. Paul calls us to care for others. These first four verses from 12 to 15 can be summarized as commands related to how we care for others. And Paul divides this section into three different categories of people. He gives instructions on how we are to treat the leaders in the church, how you are to treat those who are struggling in the church, and then how you are basically to treat everyone else around you, both inside and outside the church. So first, when it comes to caring for your leaders, you are to treat your leaders with honor. Verse 12 we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. To respect and to esteem, the, the, these are the two major instructions that he gives to the congregation. These are the two things that Paul calls on the church to do regarding their leaders. They are to show appreciation, acknowledgement, and affection. Now, although it's true from other places in the Bible that we should be treating our leaders all across the board with, with honor, here, Paul is specifically talking about the leaders inside the church. In other words, the pastors and the elders. And we know this because of the description that he gives, which means that there are important implications here for elders 
and for those who are aspiring to become elders. So even though these verses are directly addressing to the congregation, I want to take this moment to humbly speak to my brother pastors and to those of you who are aspiring to be pastors. Because we learn here what it looks like to have a ministry that is worthy of honor. First, we see that elders are to be laborers among the people. The the, the word labor carries with it connotations of toil and struggle. In other words, this is a call to hard work. If, If you're not cut out for hard work, then don't become a pastor. Don't aspire to the office of eldership. This is a call to labor hard among the people. Secondly, they are to be leaders, right? Respect those who are over you in the Lord. Now, to be honest, I don't really love the word over you. Um, It kind of sounds a little bit harsh and domineering to our ears, and it doesn't really communicate the full sense of the word either. The, The original word for over you communicates this idea of exercising authority, but exercising authority with care and devotion to the people, It is exercising authority while you are being concerned about the people. In other words, this isn't a heavy-handed authority. It's leading with love. Third, elders are to admonish others, which simply means to warn others. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, says something very helpful about the tone of the word admonish. Admonish means warning, um, but, but here's the tone of the word. He says, while its tone is brotherly, right? It's like a brother speaking to another brother. It's big brotherly. It's like an older, wiser brother telling his young, reckless brother, don't do it, man. I'm I'm telling you this because I love you. If you do this, you are going to go down a path that leads to trouble. Brother pastors and aspiring elders, this is what it looks like to have a ministry that is worthy of honor. It's a ministry that is characterized by working hard to lead with love and care genuinely for souls. And because this is the work that church leaders are called to, because this is the work that elders are called to, the congregation is to lovingly honor their elders And when this kind of relational dynamic exists between the the elders and the congregation, that creates a wonderful peace within the family of God. That's how verse 13 ends. It says, be at peace among yourselves. At at first, it it sort of feels like this verse is just kind of hanging there randomly. It's almost like you can take it out and you wouldn't miss a beat in the flow of his overall argument. But... I think this is actually a conclusion to his very first idea of how you are to treat your elders. The way to be at peace with ourselves in the church is to have pastors who are laboring in love and admonition and to have members who are honoring their pastors with love and respect. I mean, we can just see what happens in in any organization or institution where the leadership is domineering and heavy-handed and those who are non-leaders are disrespectful and resentful. That kind of relational dynamic leads always to hostility and conflict. This kind of tumultuous relationship is, is all around us in the world. We can see it all over the place. But the church of Jesus Christ is set apart and called to be different called to a higher standard of love and holiness. 
Leaders are to love and labor hard for the people. Congregation, treat your leaders with honor. Secondly, treat those who are struggling with care. Verse 14, Paul continues and he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, let's be honest, it's no secret that in every church there are saints who are struggling in various ways, like idleness, discouragement, and weakness, both physical and spiritual. And, and it's no secret that sometimes we can be tempted to keep our distance from people who are struggling because they can feel like an inconvenience and a burden, But as the people of God within the family of God, we are not called to turn away from those who are struggling, but to turn towards them and to move actively towards them. In this world, those who struggle and are burdensome are often the ones who are marginalized in our society. They're they're often pushed to the fringes and, and cast aside to be forgotten and left behind. Well, friends, but we need to recognize that this is completely opposite from the very heart of God. God's heart is to move close to the lost, the broken, and those who are helpless in this world. And and he put his heart on full display when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And it was Jesus who said that he did not come for those who are healthy. Jesus came for those who are lost for those who are broken, for those who are sick because of their sin. And so in that sense, is not God simply calling us to treat others the way that he has treated us? We were the ones who were idle in matters of holiness and righteousness, but the Lord lovingly admonished us and warned us about our sins and called us to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were the ones who were faint-hearted because of our trials and troubles in life. But the Lord gave strength to our weak knees. And and he raised our drooping heads to see the light of the gospel. And he sent his Holy Spirit to be our great comforter. We were the ones who were weak in our ungodliness and sin. But as Romans Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, if anyone anyone of you are are here today and and you're feeling idle and lost, faint-hearted and and discouraged because of your circumstances, weak because of the, the, the sin and the brokenness of your life, then I want you to know that we worship a God who is calling you not not to go run and hide because, because of your sin and your shame, but calling you to come and to find life in his son, Jesus Christ. He is calling the the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak to come to him because he is full of grace and full of mercy and full of love. So come to Jesus. Even for you, my brothers and sisters, if you are feeling idle, faint-hearted, and weak, Come to Jesus, come to Jesus. You know, it's not hard to see that there are a lot of struggling souls around us these days, but as God moved into the chaos of our world and the messiness of our lives, he too is calling us to step in to the chaos of other people's lives and and all the messiness and to care for those who are struggling. Not to abandon them, 
To the idle, we must admonish them and offer warning. To those who are faint-hearted, we need to encourage them and offer comfort. To those who are weak, we need to help them and serve them in any way that we can. And understand that it's not just about doing this once and then, and then twice and then coming to this point where you're like, that's it, I've, I've done enough. I've, I've done my due diligence. The final command he gives in this section is be patient with them all. All, all the idle, all the faint-hearted, all the weak, be patient with them all. Do you know what patience means? Patience means long-suffering. It is suffering long. Paul is essentially saying, brothers and sisters, be ready to forgive and to forbear again and again and again and again and again, and I can just keep going on and on and on. We're all going to struggle in in different ways at different times and for different reasons, but as the family of God, we need to play the long game and care for one another well, care for one another as God has cared for us. Treat those who are struggling with care. Lastly, treat everyone with goodness. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's possible here that because of the severe persecution that the Thessalonians were experiencing, some of them may have very well been tempted to retaliate against their persecutors and seek revenge. And and I think we, to to be honest, we all kind of know that that impulse to some degree, right? When, When we're treated unfairly, when we're treated unjustly, there is a desire, sometimes a burning desire, to treat others the same way that we have been treated or worse. But the message is clear here. Christians do not fight fire with fire. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. It's important to realize here that there is no exception. There there is no qualifying statement. It doesn't matter how badly you've been treated. It doesn't matter what kind of injustice you suffered. Christians are never given a license to commit evil. We are never given a license to to curse, to gossip, to, to vent our uncontrolled anger. We're never given a license to be slanderous and malicious. The greatest injustice ever committed in the history of the world was the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this was literally the greatest injustice because he was the only one to ever exist who was without sin. Never once did he make a mistake. Never once did he break the commandments of God. And yet our Savior was condemned and crucified on the cross. But what did Jesus do in the face of such evil retaliation First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter writes, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Listen, if the perfect, sinless Christ did not repay evil for evil, then how much more us? Notice here, too, that Paul is not merely calling us away from committing evil 
and, and calling us to, sit, to, to stand on some morally neutral middle ground. No, no, no. He, he, he takes the pendulum and then he swings it all the way in the other direction. Verse 15, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Okay, he, he's saying here, it's not just enough to simply resist and refrain from retaliation and revenge. We are called to actively pursue good. Don't, don't just wait around for opportunities to come for you to do good, but go and create opportunities for yourself. And, and he's not talking about just doing good to those who are within the church. He says, always seek to do good to one another. That's, that's talking about the fellow believers and sisters in the Lord and to everyone, meaning those who are outside the church as well. You see, the the world understands the rule of reciprocity. Treat others the way that you've been treated. If someone's a jerk to you, you're allowed to be a jerk to them. If your husband gets angry at you, then you're allowed to be angry at them. If your friends hurt you, then you're allowed to hurt them back. But the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us the rule of grace. Treat others the way that they don't deserve. Wasn't it Jesus who said and taught in a sermon on the mount, if someone strikes you in the face, then turn to him the other cheek. If someone comes and and sues you and takes your hat, what are you to do? Give them your jacket also. If someone forces you to go one mile, go, go the extra distance and go two miles with them. Regarding your enemies, Jesus says, go and love them and pray for those who persecute you. This is how we show goodness to everyone. Be gracious. Be ruled by the rule of grace. Think about how God treated you with such loving kindness and seek to do the same for others. You are to care for, the same, you are to care for others the same way God has cared for you. Here's point number two, care for your heart. Whereas the the first point focused on how we relate to others, this this second point here, the second section is is, is focused primarily on the posture of our heart. So there are four things that he says here. First, he says, be joyful. Verse 16, rejoice always. Rejoice always always. That, that, that means exactly what it says, we are to always be joyful. What, what Paul is talking about here is not a joy that is grounded in our circumstances that change, because if that's the case, then, then our joy will come and go depending on how good our circumstances are and how bad our circumstances are. What, what, what he's talking about is a joy that is grounded in the Lord, the Lord who never changes, in other places, we see Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. When our joy is in the Lord, in who he is and what he's done, then even when our circumstances change and things go from good to bad or, and bad to worse, we can still rejoice knowing that God is still God and he is still for us and not against us. You know, years ago, before I married Kathy, I was hanging out with my father-in-law, and, and he told me something that I would never forget. And, and I'm sure that I've shared this with many of you before, too. He said that Christians ought to be the happiest and most joyful people in the world. And that's because we have Jesus Christ. And he is more than enough. 
Friends, as you consider your own life, would people look at you and say that you are always rejoicing? That you are rejoicing always? Our joy in Christ is meant to transcend our sorrows in our circumstances. So, so I'm, not here, I'm not here saying that you can't be sorrowful, but even as the apostle said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. When we're able to rejoice always, even in times of real sorrow and suffering, this is the kind of heart posture that confounds the world and that comforts the struggling saint and that points everyone to the beauty and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice always. Secondly, be prayerful. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, just to be clear here, this this doesn't mean that you're supposed to live every second on your knees, hands together, heads bowed, and uttering prayers to to the Lord. The the Bible also calls us to do things like go to work and and work hard for the Lord. Go to church, sing, and, and serve one another. Fellowship. And when we're obeying commands like these ones, we're not exactly praying. So to pray without ceasing is is an exaggeration, but one that helps us to understand that prayer should be a consistent spiritual activity in your life. You can't pray every second of the day, but you can be praying throughout the day, even if it's just for a few seconds. Employers can do this while they're at work. Father, please help me to be faithful and to work hard. Mothers can do this in the chaos of raising lots of young children. Lord, thank you for the gift of these little ones. Please help me to be patient. Students can do this even when it comes to crunch time and exam seasons. Lord, help me to be faithful and to work diligently. Sometimes that's all it takes. But we can be praying all the time throughout the day, even if it's just for a few seconds. Whatever season of life that you find yourself in, constantly set your heart before the throne of God's grace. Be joyful, be prayerful, thirdly, be grateful. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Much like the first command to rejoice always, we don't just turn off gratitude only, uh, turn on gratitude only when our circumstances are favorable and easy. We're to be grateful in every circumstance, in all circumstances, period. E- even when something like a special service at a convention center gets canceled, we're able to give thanks. Even when your plans change or you lose your job or you suffer loss, whatever the case may be for you, we are always to give thanks because who knows how the Lord is going to use this circumstance in your life. Who knows how he's going to take your your trials, even your worst trials and the wickedness of mankind to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. I mean, do not, do, don't, don't we have such great evidence that God is in control even when things are chaotic, messy, and broken in the word of God? Don't we see that God can still fulfill his purposes and his plans through the wickedness of man? If God is the God of righteousness and steadfast love, if God is on the throne today and forevermore, then regardless of what happens in our lives, 
we can always give thanks to him. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that our hearts are not meant to despair, to be distant from him, and to be filled with grumbling about everything that is going on. On the contrary, we are to be always joyful, prayerful, and grateful, and not because life is easy, but because this is God's will for your lives and for my life. And that ought to be enough. This is what the God of the universe commands our hearts to be like. Always joyful, always prayerful, and always grateful. The Lord has saved us in Christ to change the very disposition of our hearts. And as Patrick likes to say, we ought to have a sunny gospel disposition. This is, this is fitting for people who are called children of light. So be joyful, be prayerful, be grateful, and then here's a warning, the last one, be careful. We need to be careful that as we go on in this life, we do not shut our ears and close our hearts when God speaks to us. That's where he goes next in verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. The spirit of the living God is not meant to be suppressed and silenced in our lives. The Holy Spirit is like a burning fire that is meant to burn brightly in our hearts. But the danger is that sometimes we can start to extinguish the fire and extinguish that, that, that spirit when we start to despise prophecies, verse 20. To despise something is to show contempt towards it. It's just to dismiss it and, and disregard what is said. Showing contempt for God's prophetic word was a trademark sin of the Israelites throughout the centuries. I mean, Think about Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30. The, the prophet writes, Many years, God, you bore with them, the Israelites, and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. And what did the Lord do? Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Well, friends, we need to be so careful that we don't do the same thing that the Israelites did by despising God's prophetic word. Now this one little word here in verse 20, prophecies, has been the source of a great many debates revolved around the continuation of spiritual gifts. What, what, what does Paul actually mean by prophecies? The difficulty of this question today is that there are just so many different positions on this matter. I mean, you have some people who believe that the gift of prophecy is a kind of immediate revelation that comes from God to an individual, and that individual is to share it with the people in their congregation. Still, others believe that, that, that prophecy is merely synonymous with the preaching and the proclamation of God's word. So they would see what's happening here right now as prophecy. And then there are others in between these positions and kind of all around, and then there are also multiple facets to this debate. If, if prophecy meant this kind of divinely inspired utterance, has that gift stopped since the end of the apostolic era? Now, I just want to be clear here. 
And I think it's absolutely important for all of us to eventually come to a theological conclusion on this matter by studying the Bible as a whole. Not, not just taking one single verse out of the context of the entire scriptures. And we also need to realize that, that good Bible-believing Christians are going to come to solid theological conclusions that are different from one another. And I know that even within our church, we have differences on this position. But for the purposes of this sermon today, all I want you to see here is that the application does not change based on your interpretation of prophecies. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself a continuationist or if you, consi- or if you consider yourself a cessationist or somewhere in between there. Every prophet, every preacher, every pastor and every person that seeks and claims to communicate the word of God is to be tested in all that they say. That application, that call applies to everyone on the spectrum. That's what the early Bereans did when Paul arrived in their city and started preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When the Apostle Paul preached, they opened their early version of the scriptures and they were examining it to see if what Paul was saying actually matched what was being said in the Bible. And that's why we make it such a big point for for you to bring your Bibles and to have it open either in in, in a hard copy or on your phone. You You ought to follow along with everything that it says. But friends, it ought to serve us well to follow the example of the Bereans. It doesn't matter if someone is preaching a sermon or they're sharing an an advice or counsel or saying that God told me to tell you, take all that they say and sift it through the truth of God's word. You know, years ago I had a person who called me from Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, he called me, he didn't know who we were, but he called me and uh, he said, you know, God told me to tell you that you guys are heretics. And it took everything in me to say, well, God told me to tell you that you're a heretic, so one of us has to be wrong, right? But I didn't say that, thank the Lord. You don't pay, repay evil for evil, right? It doesn't matter who it is. If it's a person like that in, from Jacksonville, Florida, or if it's a pastor preaching in this pulpit, we are to take everything and sift it through God's word. And when you hear the things that line up with God's perfect and inerrant word, those are the good truths that you were commanded to hold fast to in verse 21. Take those good words that have been tested and and, and tried and, and have come out true and take them to heart. Seek to understand it fully and seek to obey it with all diligence. But the things that don't pass the test, the things that are caught in the sifting through God's word, those things that are in contradiction to God's revealed truth are evil and they are to be rejected and completely ignored. As the old saying goes, Grace Fellowship Church, be a Berean. Be a Berean. Examine everything, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, Take a step back and just consider everything that we've covered. 
the, 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 the sheer volume and density of these commandments tells us that obedience matters in the Christian faith. Obedience matters. These commands aren't just given for you to, to read and to understand. They, they are meant to be applied and obeyed in our lives. And so we need to be so careful that we are not presuming on grace. But at the very same time, we also need to be careful that we are not ignoring grace, trying to obey these commands by our own strength. In these last few verses, Paul moves from giving his final instruction and and, and then closing with a prayer of benediction. And, And the content of Paul's final prayer in this letter shows us that as you seek to care for others and as you seek to care for your own heart, the beauty is God will care for you all the way. In this prayer and benediction, we learn about the purpose and the promise of God. First, the purpose, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This prayer of Paul reveals the ultimate agent of our sanctification. It's not up to you and your own strength and determination to become holy. God is the one who sanctifies you. And that's why Paul is is praying here to God. It's because he, he is the only one who is able to keep you blameless in this life until the return of Jesus Christ. And notice here the extent of God's sanctifying work. Paul prays that God himself will sanctify you completely, fully, from the inside and the out. And and then he basically reiterates that point by also praying, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. The the, the use of that triad of words, spirit, soul, body, is, is Paul's way of basically talking about the entire Christian life, both the inner person and the outer person. The purpose of God is to sanctify you through and through, inside to the outside, all the way until Jesus calls us home. And then here's the promise. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful. He's not one to give up in the middle. He's not one to grow tired and make a mistake. He will finish what he started. You know, maybe there are some of you in here who, who went through that first part of the sermon and you're, and you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the sheer number of commands that the Lord gives through his apostle. Friend, if that's you, then you need to realize and remember that you are not alone in the pursuit of holiness. The God who first called you into the faith is the same God who will carry you through until you get to the finish line. So here's a great place for you to test what I just said and see for yourself if that's actually found in verses 23 and 24. If if what I said passes the test, then hold on to that sweet promise that God is faithful and he is full of, of grace to enable you and carry you through. 
and let that stir your, your heart with, with joy and gratitude. Let, let it produce humble confidence in you to put to death sin and to, to pursue righteousness. And let it motivate you to pray this prayer for one another. God will carry you through until the very end. Paul ends his letter with these closing words, verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Of course, I need to just pause here for a second and clarify that you are not commanded to kiss one another, okay? The command here is to greet. That's where the emphasis is, not on the to kiss. The, the, the focus is on the greeting, not the kissing, okay? Let's just make that very clear here. The holy kiss was just a cultural way for them to express greeting. In our day today, what's much more appropriate is a handshake or giving one another a hug. The, the command here is to greet, not to kiss. And then again, verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And the final word, focused on the grace of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace Fellowship Church, as you seek to endure amidst affliction and endure faithfully until the end, know that there is divine grace that goes with you and will carry you through the end. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Friends, let's take your song sheets and stand and let's sing that final song together.